0: Continuing on our uh, study of the Trinity, understanding better who God is, the one God who is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, tonight, I'm going to focus on what, uh, so, some of what the Bible has to say about the Father-Son relationship. And then next week, I'm going to focus on what the Bible, some of what the Bible has to say about the Son-Spirit relationship. I mean, interestingly, you might say, what about Father-Spirit? Well, there isn't much in the Bible that is directly Father and Spirit, and what there is almost always involves the Son. And so we'll actually look at that next week when we take a look at the Son-Spirit relationship. The Father comes into that uh, a fair bit as well. But uh, tonight then we're focusing on beholding the beauty of the Father's relationship with the Son. And the Hannah you have will be very helpful uh, because we're, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages, and instead of hunting them up in our Bibles, there they are on the sheet uh, for us to look at, so it'll be, be more economic. The Introduction, this, this may look familiar to you from our Sunday morning sermon, huh, from la- this past Sunday. Have you learned to read your Bibles with Trinitarian lenses on? How are you doing? Are, are you seeing a bit more of the Trinity as you're reading through? I mean, it's just amazing how how many... What I call Trinitarian indicators there are, as you read, just the books of the Bible. I mean, especially in the New Testament, how how often, if you just pay attention, that there is a reference to the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And sometimes they're disguised by pronouns. So you have to look carefully at the pronouns and see, indeed, oh, that's the Father, or that's the Son, or that's the Spirit. And uh, just kind of look carefully at what this is saying about them. And when you do that, you realize how much the Bible emphasizes not only the oneness of God, that's true, in both Testaments, there is one and only one God, but it also emphasizes the distinctive roles of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. And it really is a beauty to behold. I mentioned last week, just by way of review, that the doctrine of the Trinity really depends upon two main themes. I use the, the, uh, the, the image... Uh, of uh, of the doctrine of the Trinity as a giant block doctrine upheld by two pillars. And those two pillars are the distinction pillar and the unity or equality or identity pillar. It's hard to know which of those is best. Distinction meaning Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons. So the Father is the Father, not the Son. The Son is the Son, not the Spirit. If that's not the case, then we don't have trinitarian monotheism we have unitarian monotheism but no indeed father son and spirit are distinct personal expressions of second pillar the one god one nature of god one nature that is fully possessed by the father and by the son and by the spirit so let me read this paragraph capital letter b that is a summary statement of what we looked at uh, in our discussion on Sunday as we looked at Ephesians 1 and will help us move forward now. The Christian faith affirms that there is one and only one God eternally existing while fully and simultaneously expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is equally God, each is eternally God, and each is fully God, not three gods, but three persons of the one Godhead. Each person is equal in essence as each possesses eternally, simultaneously, and fully the identically same and undivided divine nature. Yet each is also an eternal and distinct personal expression of that one undivided divine nature. Because of this, what distinguishes each person of the Godhead from each other person is not and cannot be the divine nature since the identically same one and undivided divine nature is the full and eternal possession of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit rather what distinguish <clears throat> excuse me rather what distinguish each person of the godhead from each other person are two things now the ontological i'll explain that in a moment the ontological and functional relations that each has with each of the other persons and secondly his particular roles in relation to the others so i think these two r words relations and roles are the best terms to to uh, summarize the ways in which the bible describes the relationship of the father the son and the spirit what distinguishes them is their relation to one another and the roles that flow out of those relations. Now, in that paragraph, when I say the ontological and functional roles, this gets a little complicated. I mean, there are parts of this that that are uh, you know just a, a challenge. So, the ontological uh, relations. This refers to the the very being of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, where the early Church has held the view from the time of Nicaea on. That the relation between the Father and the Son in terms of their being is one in which the Father is the unbegotten Father and the Son is begotten from the Father. So the the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten. And uh, this relation is an eternal one. There never was a time when the Son was not the begotten Son of the Father. Sometimes they use the analogy of if you had a, an eternal son, S-U-N, right? Not S-O-N. If you had an eternal son, and it really was a son, it would emit light. So the light from that son would be as eternal as the sun itself. So in this case, the father, because he eternally begets his son, S-O-N, you know, the analogy gets a little messy because of the, the two, two meanings of the word son, right? <clears throat> because the father eternally begets the son the son is as eternal as the father is and yet the the son <clears throat> is ontologically dependent upon the father in, in for his very being the spirit by the way <clears throat> well, I'm so sorry i have asthma and uh, thank, thanks to my mother uh, and uh, it just uh, bothers me from time to time this is one of those times i uh, am feeling a, a bit of it coming up so you'll have to forgive me i'm so sorry Um, So the Spirit, by the way, has has the ontological relation as from the Father and the Son. So indeed, He proceeds from Father and Son according to the Nicene Constantinople Creed. So in terms of their being, the Father is unbegotten, the Son begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now what that establishes then... Is the functional relation of father, son and spirit. So the father is the eternal father of the son. Why is he? Because he eternally begets the son. The son, thank you, is the eternal son of the father. Why is he? Because he's eternally begotten from the father. And so their relation is an eternal relation of father, son. The, the Father is eternally the Son, the Son is, eter- the Father is eternally the Father, the Son is eternally the Son, <clears throat> and, uh, and therefore, then the roles that they carry out are roles that express who each of them is as Father, Son, and Spirit. So this, I think, uh, it, it gets a little more clear at this point, where you realize the Father always functions in the Bible as Father, He always acts in a way that befits who he is as father. The son always functions as son. He always acts in a way that befits who he is as son. The reason he does does function that way, the reason that he is in that role, is because he is the son. And so he functions as the son. So the relation, father-son relation, thinking particularly of those two persons, is the basis for the roles that they carry out. And indeed, we'll see how that works in what unfolds here. Okay, so that's the basic idea of those relations and roles that are the, are the basis for understanding what distinguishes the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So now moving on to Roman numeral 2, the Father's unique relation and role within the Trinity. And I begin here with a statement from the Nicene Constantinople Creed that was uh, written in 381. The first version of this was written in 325, but then it was revised and uh, and restated uh, just slightly differently in 381. That has become kind of the standard uh, form of this creed. Uh, the creed reads, in part: "We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth." Of all that is visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So there's that notion of his very being is from the Father. He is the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one nature with the Father. And that word that's used right there with one nature with the Father was a term that was coined at Nicaea in 325. The term is homoousios. Homo, like homogenized milk, it's all the same stuff, right? So same and usios, nature. So the Son has the very same nature, not same kind of nature, not a similar nature, but the very same nature as the Father. He is homoousius with the Father. So that was affirmed then at uh, at Nicaea 325, restated in 381 in the form that you have there. Now, what does that mean in terms of the role of Father, Son, and Spirit? If the relation is a Father-Son relation, what does this look like in terms of how each one of them functions? Well, let's start with the Father. And it's clear, as we saw on Sunday, uh, from Ephesians 1, the Father is supreme in position and authority among the persons of the Godhead. He is supreme in position and authority among the persons of the Godhead. Now, He is not supreme in nature, right? Let's be very clear the, on that, that He has the identically same nature as the Son, and so at the level of nature, they are, they are completely equal And uh, co-equal, co-eternal, and and identical in nature. But in terms of role, the father, because he's father, has supreme authority within the Trinity, the highest position. So here are just a few passages that help us see this. Psalm 2 Uh, In the Old Testament, Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, this is the psalm, by the way, that begins, why are the nations raging, the peoples devising a vain thing? So it's it's the, the context is one in which the whole world, all of the nations of the world are in rebellion against God and against His anointed. What is God's response to that? Well, here is part of it in verses 7 to 9. We read in this verse, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Who's the Lord? Keep reading. He, the Lord, said to me. Who's the me? Keep reading. You are my son. So it's pretty clear here, isn't it, that this is the father speaking. I will tell you the decree of the Lord. That's got to be the father because that Lord then says to his son, So, indeed, this is the father son relationship in which he says to his son, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, this is the father speaking ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will shatter them like earthenware. So, Is it the case that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father now has authority over all of the world? Yes, he does. There are many passages that affirm that and it's greatly comforting and strengthening to know that. No matter what happens on November 8th, Christ reigns as Lord over all. But here's my question. How is he in that position? Ask of me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. So we see here that this is fulfilled in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We know that because this passage is quoted in Acts 13 by the Apostle Paul. You can look at this later if you like. Acts 13, right around verse 33, if I remember right. Where Paul quotes this passage and refers to it as fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. So as the crucified, now risen, exalted Jesus, the Father gives to him the nations to govern. And the purpose, according to Psalm 2 in his governance over the nations is that the day will come when he will execute the wrath of God upon all of the nations of the world that stand outside of Christ. It's really an amazing thing to contemplate. Now contrast, I don't have the verse here, but contrast that with Matthew 28, the, the Great Commission passage, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing, teaching. But the verse that precedes that, that's Matthew 28:18. Here's what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and earth has always been mine, right? No, no. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Therefore, go to the nations. They're mine. I have been given authority. So here is, again, the resurrected Christ who as the one who came as the son of David, the Messiah, accomplished the work that the first Adam failed to do. He now is given by the Father this position of authority over the nations. In Matthew 28, to save the elect throughout the nations, go into the world and bring them in. In Psalm 2, to bring judgment against all of those, among all of the nations of the world who are outside of Christ. So indeed, the Father giving to the Son this position of authority over all. Here's another indication of the Father's ultimate authority in the Trinity. Matthew 6, 9 and 10, Jesus says, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that interesting that prayer, normative Christian prayer, is prayer to the Father In the name of the Son, we only have access through Christ. We don't have rights of access on our own. We go through Christ to the Father, and we pray in the power of the Spirit. So yes, prayer is Trinitarian, but not because we pray to all three members of the Trinity, but rather we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. Well, why pray to the Father? Because He's the one who has highest authority. We come to the one who has... All authority over everything who grants that authority to his Son in in executing the authority of the Father. So it's interesting here, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, what about the kingdom of Christ? How does that relate to your kingdom come, the kingdom of the Father? And I think the answer is the kingdom of the Father is executed through his Son, whom whom he installs as king over all. So the Father through His Son reigns over all things in heaven and earth. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, here's another indication of the supremacy of the Father in role and authority. Uh, again, this is at the end of history. When, when everything is put in subjection to Christ, when all things are subjected to Him, the Son, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to To the one who subjected all things to him. Who do you suppose that is? Who's the one who subjected all things to the son? It's the father. If we had the previous verses along with this verse, you could see that. It's very clear in in the preceding verses. The father is the one who subjects everything to the son. So when the, the moment comes, oh my goodness, what a glorious time this will be when everything is put in subjection to the son which is not now the case you remember the little phrase in hebrews chapter 2 we do not now see all things subject to him no surprise have you read the paper have you have you looked at the world we live in we do not now see all things subject to him but the day is coming when it will be Everything will be sub- in subjection to Christ. Why is that the case? Because the Father puts all things in subjection to the Son. So when everything is in subjection to the Son, what does the Son do? Put himself in subjection to the one who subjected all things to him, that God the Father might be all in all. So indeed, amazing to see <coughs> this father-son relationship and how it works out as the father has the highest position of authority, but does everything that he does through the agency of his son. And we'll see more of that in a moment. Ephesians 1 3, this is a familiar verse to us, right? Because uh, we looked at this passage at some detail in, on Sunday. Blessed be, not God generically, not God, but blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he begins to enumerate the things that the Father has done. He chose us, he predestined us, he sent his Son to redeem us and on it goes. Sent the Spirit to seal us and all these gifts that the Father has done, all from the Father, designed by the Father, in order for us to experience the benefits of them. So Philippians 2, last passage here, here again, is it's, it's the same moment as 1 Corinthians 15. Everything is put in subjection to Christ, but the way Paul describes that in Philippians 2, 9 is as follows. For this reason also, that is, because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that's the way verse 8 ends, therefore God highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, period. No, to the glory of God, the father. So really, there are three indications in these verses of the higher position of the Father, one comes, God highly exalted him, right? So who is it who elevates the Son to this place where he is at the right hand of the Father? The Father does that. And then the next phrase, he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Who bestowed that name on the Son? The Father did, right? And what name that is, I don't know. I, I. This is my hunch. N- number one, I don't think it's the name Jesus. Because Jesus had been given to him at his birth. You shall name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. I think it's a name that, that is just between the Father and the Son that we don't know, uh, that, that is given to him. Remember in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes again on the white horse, you remember what it says? He has a name written on him that no one knows. I think that's probably this name. I've been just guessing. I don't know that for sure. But I think it's probably this name. So the Father bestows on him this name that is above every name. Then when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, here's the third indication. It ultimately redounds to the glory of the Father. Why? Why would you have that last phrase? Every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why not a period there? Whose will did Jesus fulfill? Whose work did he accomplish? Whose purposes did he he carry out in his mission on earth? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done, right? You're King James, I'm not, right? I heard thine over there. That's okay. We, We can live together. Yeah, that's all right. So indeed, there, there is this very clear indication that the, the father has this highest position. The son came, came to do exactly what the father sent him to do. So he has that role overall. Okay, moving ahead. The father then is the grand architect. The wise designer of creation. And we saw this Sunday, so I won't take much time on it, but just to note again from Ephesians 1, verses 8 to 10, that it's the Father who did this. In all wisdom and insight, He, the Father, made known to us the mystery of His, the Father's will, according to His, the Father's kind intention, which He, the Father, purposed in Him, the Son. With a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. So indeed, there is this place of honor that the Father gives to the Son, but indeed, it's the Father who gives this to His Son, puts Him in this highest place, and is, designs everything that takes place for that to occur capital letter c the father is the giver of every good and perfect gift james 1 very familiar passage every good thing given every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights isn't that a great phrase the father think of light in contrast to darkness right the father of lights light good uh life-giving you know the light of man. I mean, the, the, the connotations with light in the Bible are so positive. So the father of lights, the one who only gives good to his children. Uh, it comes from him with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You can count on him always giving good to his children. Isn't that a great thing to know? In Romans eight thirty one and 32, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's God here? If God is for us, keep looking, if God is for us, who is against us? He, God, who did not spare his own son. So again, this is the father. When you look at it in context, the father did not spare his own son, but delivered him up before us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, goodness, if he gave his son, do you think he's going to hold back a cream and sugar set, you know, a salt and pepper set. I mean, uh, I mean, won't, won't he give us everything? He's he's not going to hold back anything. Once once you realize he's given his son, wow, incredible! So indeed, from the father, he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. Yet the father provides and accomplishes his work through the son and the spirit, as Ephesians one that we looked at Sunday, makes clear the Father does his his redeeming work through the Son. He applies that work of the Son to us by the Spirit. We saw that in Ephesians 1, and there are many other places where we see this, but that's a a good sample uh, for uh, seeing that point. Okay, moving on now, the Father in relation to the Son. And here I want to see a, a basic principle that is just all over the New Testament in particular, in terms of the relationship of the father and the son and that is that the father the son is under the headship or the authority of the father and it makes sense doesn't it i mean these are this relationship is not one brother and another brother it's not a friend and a friend it is father son in which among other things of course there's love of course there's there's commonality there there's there's purpose uh, that, that is joined, and, and ma- many other things are involved in this, but there 's also authority and submission that is involved in that father son relationship. So indeed, the son is under the authority or the father, <coughs> excuse me, of the Father. And you see this, for example, in First Corinthians eleven: three, Paul says, "I want you to understand that Christ is the head, that is the authority over every man." The man is the head of his wife, is what he's talking about there, and God is the head of Christ. So the relationship that grounds the other two, God is the head of Christ, that comes at the end of that verse, indicates this is the relationship between the father and the son. The father has headship over his son. And here's another place that you see this, and it's in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, where The the son's relationship to the father as agent of the father, carrying out the will of the father, doing the work of the father, under the authority of the father, is seen in eternity past, in the incarnation, when he becomes a man, and in eternity future. All three of those are indicated in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. So here we read, God, who is this God? We'll see in a moment it's the father, right? Because he has a son. We'll see that. God the Father, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now look, in that, that first phrase in verse two, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Here's what that means. When the Son spoke, he was not speaking his own word, He was speaking the word the Father gave him to say. As he said over and over, I'll show you a verse in a moment here. It's on the handout. He he said, I do not speak on my own initiative. I speak as the Father tells me. So indeed, it's the word of the Father through the Son in the incarnation. Hence, the Son yields to the will of the Father. He speaks the word of the Father. He is under the authority of the Father in everything that He said and did during His incarnate life. But is it only there? Oh no, look at the next phrase in in verse 2. In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed... Heir of all things. That is, whom the Son, he the Father, appointed heir in eternity future. So indeed, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and in Philippians 2 and so on, the Father is the one who puts the Son in that highest place overall, heir of all things, put there by the Father. And then the last phrase, through whom, Son, he, the Father, created the world. Now we go all the way back to the beginning of the universe, to creation, where creation happens by the work of the Father through the agency of the Son. The Son is the one whom the Father employs, as it were, to build the creation He has designed. And indeed, there, there we have it. So I just want you to see all three of those right there in Hebrews 1. Now, here are some passages that just emphasize the truth that we just saw with a little bit more uh, specificity, a few more texts. So capital letter B, the son's submission to the father during his incarnation and earthly mission. I could have pages and pages of verses here, right? Because there are so many indications of this. But here's, I think, one of the most astonishing statements. It's in John 8, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, You will know that I am he, and I do nothing. Circle the word nothing if you're taking notes. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always, circle the word always, do the things that are pleasing to him. I mean, aren't those amazing statements? I mean, you might, you might ask the question, is this exaggerated language for the sake of effect? I always do what's pleasing him. Oh, of course, I don't really always. I just, you know, I just kind of, kind of as a general rule, that's what I, no, this is literally true. He always does what pleases the Father. He never speaks on his own initiative. He speaks what the Father tells him to speak. So indeed, the, you know, the, the comprehensiveness of the obedience of the Son, is astonishing. You want to be like Jesus? Think hard. Think hard. There was never one day of his life that he woke up and asked himself the question, what do I feel like doing today? Never once. You know what he woke up thinking? What is the Father's will for me today? What does the Father want me to speak? Where where does the Father want me to go? What work does the Father want me to do? Uh, It's just incredible, isn't it? I mean, absolute, comprehensive submission to the Father. Sinless obedience for the whole of his life is what the Son did. So in, in complete submission then to his Father. Well, that's the son in his incarnate mission. Uh, another statement of that I included in here uh, is from John 4:34. I love this statement. You know, they, they brought food to Jesus. He said he had food to eat that they didn't know of. And they said, well, how did you get food to eat? And he said, his response was this in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what sustains me. This is what nourishes me. This is what gratifies me, is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. So that's the son in his incarnate life and ministry. Now, what about in eternity past? Forty times, roughly 40 times in John's gospel, we read that the father sent the son. So here are just four of them. Not 40 of them. Uh, that would be too many. Here are four of them. And they're so telling. <clears throat> First one is the most well-known statement. John 3:16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So isn't it clear here that the father who sends his son then, does what the father decides to do. In other words, this is his plan and his purpose. When it says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved, it indicates purpose. For this purpose I sent him, to be savior, not to be judge. Now, second coming, by the way, the purpose of the sending of the son will be to be judged. Judge. There's no question about that. But in the first coming, no. It's not to judge the world, but to save the world. And, and this, is, this is because of the love of not... You know, it's true that the Son and the Spirit also love us. But the emphasis here is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Trinity does not have a Son The son does not have a son. The spirit does not have a son. Only the father has a son. So this is the father who sends his son in love for us. Isn't that amazing? (coughs) So indeed, the son comes then to do the will of the one who sent him. Boy, look at John 6.38. If this isn't clear... Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, I submit to you that middle clause, not to do my own will, is unnecessary. He didn't have to say that to make the point. He could have said more simply, I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me right doesn't that make sense i came down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me and you might wonder well to do the will of him who sent me is the same as your will right it's the same thing so why not just say i came down from heaven to do to do my own will because your will is the same will as him who sent me right wrong so he says i came down from heaven not to do my own will but to do the will of him who sent me isn't that stunning now don't read that to mean i didn't want to come it, well, you know I, my will was to stay home in, in the glory of the of heaven and not you know not so don't read it that way that he was resistant to the will of the father read it rather this way where does it originate where, where is the initiative in the will to send the son it is with the father not the son so I, so don't look to me as the one from whom the initiative came to come into the world. No, it, it, the initiative came from the Father. Is it my will to do the will of the Father? Oh, yes, absolutely. I do it gladly. I do it with all of my heart. My will is the will of the Father in that sense, in terms of the substance of the will, what the will chooses to do. My will is the same as the will of the Father. But in terms of initiative, oh, no. It's not my will, it's the Father's. You see that? So indeed, the Father is the one who then is credited. Boy, the Son is jealous. Just notice this as you read your, your New Testament. How often the Son jealously guards the, the glory of the Father. He does not want people to give glory to him that he believes ought to go to the Father. He he's just he's, he's amazingly humble amazingly humble. Okay, so verse uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 38. Look at 8, 842. Jesus says, I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Same idea, isn't it? And again, he could have left out that middle phrase. I have proceeded forth and come from God who sent me. He could have said it simply that way. I have proceeded forth and have come from God who sent me. But he didn't say that. Instead, he said, I have proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he initiated the sending. Isn't that the point? The initiation is credited to the Father. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Isn't that amazing? In this is love. Not that, this is First John 4, 10, it's not on your notes. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, what satisfies his just demands against us in our sin. What love the Father has for us. I mean, we sing that song, right? Behold the love, how does it go? Uh, I can't even think how it goes. But behold, the love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. And indeed, it is so true. And then finally, John John 10, 36. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, the main reason I included this verse is one word that's in there. It's the word sanctified. Isn't that interesting? Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified? and sent into the world. Now, sanctified, normally when we read that, we have in mind um, cleaning people up, you know, uh, doing, doing the work that's needed to purify people, to, to make them holy, to get rid of their sin. You know, that's what we think of normally with sanctify. Obviously, that's not the case here because Christ has no sin. He doesn't need to be cleaned up, right? So so here, the root meaning of sanctification, you probably know, is to set apart, to set apart. That's what constitutes it being holy. It's it's one of a kind. It's separate from other things. The Sabbath day is holy because it is the seventh day of rest. Six days of the week you work, the seventh day you rest, it is holy, set apart, one of a kind. So the root meaning of, of sanctified is set apart. So here's what is, is what Jesus is saying. Do you say of him whom the Father set apart, designated for this job, do you say of him whom the Father set apart and sent into the world that I'm blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? Okay, so very clearly, in the incarnate, uh, I'm sorry, in, the, in eternity past, the Father sent the Son. I also indicate here on the next page, page 3, of your outline if you have the same pagination that I do maybe you don't it looks like you don't okay so uh, the top of uh, uh, John 1, 1.3 1 Corinthians 8.6 these passages that speak of the Son creating the world also indicate that the Father creates through the Son we saw that in, in Hebrews 1 uh, li- listen to the language in 1 Corinthians 8.6 this is uh, a statement of creation how does creation take place this is 1 Corinthians 8, six. It's not, the the passage is not written out on your handout. So here are the words. Uh, Paul writes, For us there is but one God, the Father. Listen to the prepositions now. There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. How does creation take place? From the Father, through the Son. So indeed, the father creates through through the agency of his son. He redeems through the agency of his son. He brings judgment on the world through the agency of his son. So indeed, the son submits to the father then as the father's agent of creation, sent from the father to do his will. And then cap letter D, the son's submission to the father in eternity future. 1 Corinthians 15, we saw this already. Here's a little bit more of the context. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he, the Father, has put all things in subjection under his, the Son's feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident that he, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, the Son. When all things are subjected to him, the Son, then the Son himself will be subjected to the Father, to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God the Father may be all in all. So in all of eternity future, the Son is in subjection to the Father, though the Father has given everything to the Son, everything but the Father, right, in in terms of under his feet. And here, I mean, sometimes the indicators of these relationships, are uh, you you can just pass over them quickly. Here's a sample. Revelation 1.1. You know, what what is the book of Revelation? Well, oftentimes, if you hear that question, the answer will be, well, the, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which Christ gave to the angel to give to his bondservant John to give to the seven churches, and then it comes to us. Okay, that's right, except it misses one thing. Look at, look at Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. So indeed, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ that he gave to the angel to give to John to give to the seven churches that comes to us. But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him, And, of course, this is the resurrected, ascended, exalted Jesus who is given that revelation from the Father that he then passes on to us. Now, what about the love relationship between the Father and the Son? And you know what? The authority-submission relationship of Father and Son marks their love relationship. So here, here you have it, John 14 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there's a tremendous lesson in that for us because Jesus goes on to say, If you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments, right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I love the Father and I keep his commandments. So here, I I keep all of his commandments so the world may know that I love the Father. So indeed, obedience with joy and gladness marks one who loves the one whom you obey. Uh, There is such a thing as begrudging obedience where there is little, if any, love. But glad-hearted obedience, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Glad-hearted obedience is the expression of genuine love for the one whom you obey. And that's what Jesus exhibited. And then John 15, here is the, the love of the Father for the Son. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now listen, here's how this works. How how is Jesus able to abide in the love of his Father, to to dwell in it, to receive it, to, to experience it, to embrace the love the Father has for him? And the answer is because his heart is toward the Father, It's toward the Father. It's in love with the Father. How does he exhibit his love for the Father? He keeps the Father's commandments. So his keeping the Father's commandments exhibits his heart of love for the Father. And therefore, he is in a position where he can receive the love the father has for him. Imagine in a family, two two boys. I have two girls, so I can give this analogy uh, without any uh, what repercussions in my family. Okay, so two boys. One of those sons in the family is a, is a compliant son. Uh, this son respects his parents, loves his parents, appreciates what they do for him. Uh, he respects the rules of the house and, and, and is by and large an obedient son and one whose heart is drawn toward his parents. When his parents love him, he can abide in the love of his parents because his heart is toward them. His, his attitude is to want to please them. Okay, but his brother, he's a rascal. Uh, He he doesn't appreciate his parents, doesn't respect the rules of the house, does not want to do what he's told to do, and he resents the fact that his parents uh, are are treating him like like he's supposed to obey them. He doesn't want that, doesn't like that. Well, the parents attempt to love him too, show the same love to him as they do his brother, but because his heart is hard toward his parents, he cannot abide in the love of his parents. Do you see it? So indeed, Jesus abides in the love of his Father. How? By joyfully, gladheartedly obeying the Father, obeying the commandments of the Father. And of course, the commandment here in this is to us. uh, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then last section here, there's a union of the Father and the Son that is beautiful to behold, uh, that we see reflected in the in the um, the ministry of the Son on earth, John ten, for example, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand here it is that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. There is this intimacy where he is so closely connected to the Father that he knows the will of the Father. He can speak the word of the Father. He can carry out the will of the Father. And of course, I think that's tied to what we just talked about. His love for the Father, his reception of the Father allows him to experience this intimacy with the Father. Here's another statement of it in John 14. Uh, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. In other words, the works testify the Father is at work in me and through me to accomplish these works. Okay, application, just a few points. And then I'm happy to take a few questions if you want, but I know the hour is getting late. So we'll, I'll leave that up to you. Three points of application quickly. First, marvel at the wisdom, the goodness, the care, the thoroughness which with, the Father, with which the Father exercises his authority. Using his absolute authority always to bring about what is best. I mean, isn't it just wonderful to know that the Father who has absolute authority, even in the Trinity, uses that authority always governed by his moral nature of holiness and goodness, his wisdom that governs what he does. So you can know that that authority is being used for what truly is good, what, 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 what could not be improved upon. I mean, how horrible to imagine one with that kind of authority that did not do what was good. But the Father, we know that, always does what is best. Secondly, marvel at the Father's plan and purpose to place His Son on center stage. He directs attention and honor to the Son as the Son seeks in all He does to glorify the Father. I just think this is an amazing thing because the Father is the one who designs everything that takes place. And what does he design? That another, not himself, be the one before whom every knee bows, every tongue confesses. Not that the Father is Lord, but Jesus Christ is Lord. So there's a humility with the Father to design it so that another receive highest praise in the end. That that another is put in the spotlight. I mean, when's the last time you saw a Christian leader who designed the program in such a way that he intended one of his subordinates to be the one who would get the credit when the thing was accomplished in the end? And he's in the background watching. When's the last time you saw that? This is the Father. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, just just a really beautiful example of humility in leadership that you see with the Father. Finally, last point, marvel at the perfect, loving, joyous obedience of the Son, existing eternally as the Son of the Father. In all that he did, his submission to the Father was constant and uncompromising. Now, I, I hope you'll appreciate this even more next week, because next week... I'm going to talk with you about the son living his life as a man and how significant that is in understanding Jesus' obedience because I think a lot of us read a statement like that in all that he did, he submitted to the father, he obeyed everything the father gave him to do and we kind of dismiss the significance of that because we think, well of course he did, he was God and he was God. But he rendered his obedience out of his humanity. Come back next week. I mean, this is really astonishing to see. And and so, I mean, boy, marvel, marvel at the complete sinless obedience of the Son. It is a wonder to behold. So he did this. As the Son of the Father, equal to the Father in deity, in glory, and yet he submits to the Father. How amazing. May God help us to learn the joy of submission when we, are, when we are in relationships of submission to authority. May we learn the wisdom of using authority in a way that benefits others by our design. May God help us to learn that from the Trinity. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. We're so grateful for who you are and for the privilege we've had to, to take a look at these texts that help us understand better how you've revealed yourself to us. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.